Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. We are starting a new series today called The Names of God. And we're going to look at 11 names over the next 11 weeks, 11 names or titles for God. And of course, it reminded me of the famous Shakespeare quote from Romeo and Juliet, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name, would it not smell just as sweet? And the meaning is obvious, that the name doesn't make you. Uh, you could call a rose any other name, but it would still be a rose and it would still smell just as sweet. There's nothing powerful about a name in our minds that makes you who you are or doesn't make you who you want to be. The name isn't you, we make the name. But in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, names are packed with meaning. Names are packed with hope and desires as parents name their children what they would hope for them to be or what they would hope for them to model after the character of God. And sometimes I think parents prophetically named their children not knowing what was going to happen. For instance, Jacob, whose name means the trickster, or Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel when he contended with God, remember? And his name was changed to Israel, which means one who contends with God. Or Isaac, the name of my first son, his name is Isaac, which means laughter. Because when God told the promise to Abraham and Sarah, she laughed at the promise of God. And so they named him Isaac. Well, in scripture, God identifies himself with names. God identifies himself by titles, and they show something about his character. They show something about his actions and his being. In fact, when we see these names and these titles for God, they're like little revelations of who he is and what he has done. Now, before we get into these sort of uh, extra names for God, let's talk about sort of the overarching names for God in Scripture. And these will be on the screen. They're on the version notes for you there, too. Um, when we go to the Old Testament, we see one name for God, really a title for God more than a name, and that is the name or title Elohim. Elohim simply means or is translated God. It means powerful, strong, or mighty. It might have been used for any number of gods in the ancient Near East because that's what it meant. It just means strong, powerful, or mighty. When we translate it to English, we have translated it as God. Now, it's interesting that this in the Hebrew is a plural now, um, we know that the Jews believed in one true and living God. We confess one true and living God. So it's an interesting fact that this title for God is plural. Now, I'm going to let you go study and research that for yourself. But suffice it to say, it speaks of his majesty. It speaks of his power. And it even foreshadows what we know about the Trinity, that God is one, yet God is also three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Another name for God you might be familiar with is the name Yahweh. Now, this comes as close as we know to the actual proper name of God. When Moses asks, as we'll talk about later, what is your name? God reveals himself as a yeah, a share, a yeah, which kind of comes in together with this proper noun word, 
Yahweh, which just means I am that I am. This is the covenant, holy name of God. Another name you might be familiar with is the name Adonai. Adonai, again, is a title that means master or Lord. Oftentimes in Hebrew, they would refer to Elohim or Yahweh simply by the name Adonai so as to not take the name of the Lord in vain. Just call him Lord or Master. Uh, In fact, in our English Bibles, every time you see, as we read from Jeremiah earlier, every time you see the word Lord, where it is all caps in your English Bible, that is just a translation of the covenant name Yahweh. And so every time you see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the covenant name for God, Yahweh, which we have just substituted with that title, Lord or Adonai. One more is the name or title Hashem. Uh, Even below Adonai, the Jews fearing to even say the name Adonai might choose to say simply Hashem, which means simply the name. And this would have been a substitute for any proper name or title for God, again, so as to avoid taking his name in vain. They might just simply refer to him as the name. And so these titles or names of God that we're going to look at over the next 11 weeks uh, will have those two first proper names as the root. They'll either be Elohim names, as we'll see today, or they'll be Yahweh names, or maybe you've heard Jehovah names. We'll talk about those. As we learn God's names, we see these compounds using Elohim or Yahweh, we're going to see who God is, what God is in his person and in his being, what he has done, who he is in his perfections and his attributes, but more importantly, these are ways that God has opened for us to know him. Now, they're not magical words or talismans that we can use and and because we say this particular name we're going to get this particular thing from God we don't abuse his name in that way but they do reveal aspects of his character and his person to us so that as we worship him and as we pray to him and as we hear him speak through the scripture we learn more about who he is through these names or through these titles and that then therefore informs our relationship and our worship of him I thought about as we came into the new year what the new year means uh, for so many. A new year brings the promise of hope, uh, the promise of life, the promise of what adventures await us in the coming year. But there's also sort of a specter over the new year, isn't there? And maybe you're a fearful person, fearful of the uncertain or the unknown. Uh, Maybe last year was a rough year for you, your family, maybe you lost a loved one or just something terrible happened or maybe a series of terrible things happened and so the new year doesn't really present you with hope or promise but more fear and uncertainty of the unknown. I think it's interesting that we as humans when we think about life, most of us think about the ideal and what keeps us going every single day from being a child to being an old person, what keeps us going every single day is that promise of the ideal and the chasing after the ideal. What's next? What's next for me? What's next for my family? What promises await me? What hope awaits me? What good things await me? Most of us operate that, day, that way, and most of us is what keeps us operating. And there's nothing we fear more as human beings than uncertainty. And what is more uncertain than death? 
What is more uncertain? And we're not talking about those who know Christ or those who know the gospel. We know what happens after we die. There's still a bit of uncertainty in death. And it's no wonder the Bible calls death this sort of slaveholder that has a hold over us. But for most of us, the ideal of life is what keeps us going from day to day, even in the face of the unknown and the uncertainty, even of death. And I think as we look at that, the reason we tend to think of the ideal, the reason we tend to have hope, the reason we tend to look forward tells us something about ourselves. I think it tells us something about God and who God is. The fact that that's hardwired into us to have hope, to think of the future, to think of tomorrow, and to wait with expectancy and to fear the unknown. It tells us something about who we are and it tells us something about who God is. And so today, the first name we're going to look at for God is one of those Elohim combinations and it is El Kai, the living God. Or maybe if you say it in its long form, Elohim Kaim. If you ever hear a Jewish toast at a wedding or a funeral or anywhere and you hear them say Lakayim, that means to life. This combination of El, which means God, and Kayim, which means life, comes to us in this translation, the living God. And as we discover all the various names for God we're going to look at, we can say they're really all rooted here in this idea that our God, as Jeremiah said, is the one true living God. And that anything else that flows from his titles or his attributes or his names is rooted here and that he is the one true and living God. It shows us also our connection to him and that he made us and created us and breathed life into us. And so that zest we have for life, that quest we are on for life and hope and meaning and purpose and identity every single day with each passing year points us to this God who has identified himself as the living God. More importantly, to know this God is to know life itself. To know this God is to truly live life. And I'm talking both spiritually, physically, and eternally. So what do we learn about God in this name? El Kai, Elohim Kaim. Turning your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 26. It'll be on the screens for you too. And we're going to surf through the scriptures just for a second here. Deuteronomy 5, verse 26. This is Moses um, after his encounter with God on Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments and the fire and the glory of God that was on the mountain. Uh, this is what God says to his people. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and have still lived? You see, as they hear the voice of God and they compare that voice and what they've seen and what they've experienced to all that they saw in Egypt with their false gods and their idols. And we think about all that they're going to see into the, in the land that they're going to with the Canaanites and their idols and their false gods. They remember this, who among all people have heard the voice of the living God 
speaking from the fire. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to make a New Year's resolution for you. How about that? Everybody bring your physical Bibles to church. See, I made one for you. If you didn't have one, now you have one. Next week, let's all do that so I can hear that wonderful page turning as we go from Scripture to Scripture. Uh, 1 Samuel 17, verse 26. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine, Goliath, and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I mean, you know the conflict, Israel versus the Philistines, that ongoing conflict here in the early parts of First and Second Samuel, Saul and David. You know this story, David and Goliath, this young shepherd boy against this giant of a man. You know the challenge, who can defeat this giant? Here, David's challenge back to Goliath. Who is this who defies the armies of the living God? And in that statement, David is saying something. Not just that our God is living, but your God isn't. Not just that our God is the true God, but your God is no God at all, Philistines. Our God is the one true and living God, and who will contend with him? You don't have to turn here. We read this earlier, Jeremiah 10, 10. After looking at all the other gods and all the idols, and as Zane read for us earlier, they're stupid, they're foolish, they're carved, they're made by men, they're carried around by men, they can't hear, they can't speak, they're not living. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 10, 10, but our God is the one true and living God. Again, juxtaposing these false gods and these idols against the one true living God of Israel, Yahweh, Elohim, Kayim, the living true God. Turn over to Daniel chapter 6. This is the last one I'll make you turn to. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 26. I make a decree, Darius says, after Daniel was rescued from the lion's den, that in all my world dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Now, this is no big deal. In the ancient Near East, you could have your gods, and we would have our gods, and your nation has your gods, and our city has our gods, and we all just sort of get along. We might fight from time to time and see whose God is better, but this is Daniel's God, and everybody will tremble before him. But look at what Darius says next. For he, Daniel's God, Yahweh, he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to, end, to the end. Interesting, out of the mouth of this pagan king and his false gods comes this declaration that your God, Daniel, Yahweh, is the one true and living God because he saw with his own eyes the power of this living God. Here in all these verses, we see God's supremacy and the revelation of this name, the living God, that shows us God's supremacy. And in all these cases we've seen, what we're seeing laid out before us is that 
that contention between the false gods and the idols of all the nations and all the other peoples and the one true and living God. When this God speaks, there is authority. When this God defeats his enemies, he reveals himself to be the sole warrior of his people. When this God speaks, he is worthy of the sole focus of worship of his people. And when he delivers, he is the sole savior of his people. And in all these instances and many more where we see God identified as the living God, what is being said by the biblical authors is that no idol, no king, no creature, no man comes close to this God. He is matchless. And you hear Jeremiah say, these idols are stupid and foolish, and those false gods are stupid and foolish. And we all say, amen, yes, they're all stupid and foolish. But when we think about it, how often do we fall into the same idolatry as those pagan nations and those pagan men and kings did? Not all idols are carved from stone. Not all idols are seen with our eyes in nature, the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, and all that we think of as idols when we look at false religions and statues and carved images and false religions around the world. Those are idols, but that's not the extent of what an idol is. An idol is anything or anyone that occupies your mind and your heart and your passions and your affections and your time more than the one true and living God. Idols in our day might be the idol of ease, the idol of comfort, the idol of wealth, the idol of others' opinions, whether it's on your workplace or among your friends or among your family, and how you might alter your behavior or alter what you say you believe and what you say you think to suit the opinions and the ideas of the culture around you or the family or friends that surround you that don't agree with you. How often are your affections aimed at other people more than God? How often are our affections aimed at stuff and the things of the world, other authorities? How often when we think about God and we think about what's, what's important in our life and what we need to know to follow God and to know who we are and to have meaning and identity and purpose and all that stuff we're looking for, how often do we turn to other voices or other authorities? How often do we read other blogs or read other magazines or other sources or articles rather than listening to God in his word, the Bible? Church, how often do we turn to the culture and the world around us to tell us what morality is? And how many churches and denominations are no longer true churches or true representatives of Jesus Christ because they've turned their back on Scripture and in the place of Scripture and the living true God and what he says, they've turned to the opinions of men. And they've altered the Scriptures and they've altered the doctrines of the church to suit the whims of the culture around us. How often do you make your own heart and your own mind, your own feelings, your authority? If I went out on the, the mean streets of Dumas right now and I asked 10 people who God is, they have all sorts of different answers. And I say, well, how do you know? 
I guarantee the most prominent answer would be, because I think. How do you get to heaven? I don't know. How do you know that? I just feel. Who's the authority in those situations? We make ourselves the authority. I think. I feel. What I've heard. What I've been taught. Not from scripture. Not from sound doctrine. But what I want to be true. And what I think is true based on my opinion or some other man's opinion. How often do we elevate those thoughts into the place of God or those opinions into the authority of God? As we think about God's supremacy revealed in this name, the living God, let's ask ourselves some questions this morning. Church is an easy question. Do you want to hear from God? And everybody should say, absolutely, I want to hear from God. Where do you think you hear from God? Where is this voice from the fire that Moses talked about? It's right here in his word. As we open, as we hear, his spirit speaks. I want you to understand something this morning. It's it's not that God can't speak outside of his word. It's that God doesn't speak outside of his word. The Holy Spirit is not bound by the word of God. But the Holy Spirit has bound himself to the word of God. And so we must be careful when someone says, this is the word of God. Or someone says, I have a word from the Lord. Or I have this prophecy. Or I have this dream. Or I have this vision. You say, show me. Where is it in here? This is the voice from the fire. Not your own opinions. Not your feelings. Not your thoughts. Nor anyone else's. But what has God said? Do you need victory or power over the enemy this morning? A temptation that you are battling, a sin that you're battling, some sort of spiritual battle that you're in, even right now. And it's easy and spiritually cliche to say, well, give the battle to God. Think about what David said. Who is this enemy to defy the armies of the living God? And then think of this. You are not sufficient to fight the battle that you're facing on your own. And no weapon... And no armor made by men will do. You need the living and true God fighting your battles for you. Today, do you need deliverance or rescue? Salvation, even. That very first moment of deliverance when you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ and hell ceases to be your destination and heaven becomes your destination. Do you need that rescue this morning? Trust this living God. There is no other living God. There is no other true God. There is only one true and living God. Trust him this morning. Only a living God, only the living God can act to save and to deliver and to heal. And only the living God deserves your worship and all glory and all honor. Number two today, in this name we see God's life. We see God's life. The living God. The living God reveals something about who God is. Now I've preached enough about this kind of stuff before that you should know where I'm going with this. It's not just that God has life, though he does. It's not just that God gives life, though he does. 
You know this, right? It's that God is life. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when God reveals himself to Moses, here's snow on the ground and it's cold outside and there's still flies. Who knows what's going on? It's a plague up here. Speaking of Moses. And he asks God, what's your name? And God says, I am that I am. It's remarkable, isn't it? What is my name? What is your name, God? I am. To be. God is not just the giver and the source and the owner of life. God is in and of himself life itself. We say, Pastor, what does that mean? I don't know. But it's wonderful, isn't it? God is life and being and purpose and meaning. So what Paul says when he says, in him we live and we move and we have our being. From the very beginning of scripture, what do we see? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created. And he creates by the sheer word of his power, the living God who is life, breathing life into the universe, breathing life into the cosmos, breathing life into Adam, giving his life to the man. It's interesting that throughout the whole Old Testament, book after book, you have mention of life and living, maybe four or five times per book, I think. But in Genesis, the ideas of life and living are mentioned 70 times because here from God is the wellspring and the source of life. There were many other cultures at that time, obviously, many other so-called gods, many so-called myths and creators. But if you go look at any ancient Near Eastern religion or Greek mythology or Roman mythology, or the origin story of Baal or any of the false gods of the Canaanites, here's what you'll see. Sure, they might claim to have created everything after they themselves had been created. They might claim to have given life to men by all sorts of unsundry means that we'll not mention here today, but they themselves had to receive life first. But here is one who says, it's not just that I give life or that I'm the source of life or that I'm the source of creation. I am life itself. That's the message of Genesis in the midst of all the other pagan mythologies of the day and of the time. But Genesis also introduces us to a problem. In Genesis 2.17, the living God speaks to man he says, don't disobey me. Don't eat from the tree in the midst of the garden. Because in the day that you do, what's the promise? You will surely die. And we don't have to turn one page more to see this come to full fruition as Eve is deceived and then Adam, her husband, is deceived. They disobey God. They rebel against him. And all that was life and hope and vitality and goodness falls into decay and rot and sickness and death. And the worst of this wasn't even physical. Because in the day that they ate the fruit, they didn't drop dead physically, did they? But there was a death. 
There was a spiritual death that took place between them and God when they realized their shame. And instead of walking with God in the cool of day, they ran from God in their shame and their sin. And here's the news for you here this morning apart from Christ. We were right there with them. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. In Adam, all die. You say, that was just Adam. That was just Eve. That was, just, that was way back then. I do my own thing. I have my own purpose. I chart my own course. No, in Adam, you died. In Adam, you sinned. In Adam, you fell. How do you know that? Romans chapter 6, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All the life and all the goodness and all the joy of creation. Genesis 1 and chapter 2. When God said it is very good. And he blessed them. And he sent them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion. All of that squandered. In that moment of disobedience. And all that was life and light became darkness and death. And we were right there. And we are right there. With them. In our sin, we suppress the supremacy of God. and We turn to idols. In our rebellion, we lose the life of the living God and plunge headlong into death. And so the question comes to us in a moment like this. Well, this is the living God, the God of life, and we're here to celebrate and to worship him. We have this tremendous problem in front of us. What can be done about this tremendous problem of sin and death and darkness? Well, that brings us thirdly to God's invitation. When we come to the New Testament, it's called new for a reason. There's something new happening. In the opening pages of John's gospel, John chapter 1 verse 4, the word who was with God and the word who was God is identified this way in verse 4. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. Jesus. In the coming of Jesus, we see the light of God and the life of God. Wrapped up in human flesh and placed before us. And as Jesus heals, as he touches the untouchable, as he cleanses the unclean and gives sight to the blind, as he heals the lepers, as he heals the lame and they leap and walk again, as we see those miracles and we see Jesus healing, what do we see there except a reversal of the curse? We see a reversal of all that rot and all that decay and all the atrophy of sin and the fall reversed person by person in the touch of Jesus. What do we see as Jesus raises the dead? As he literally goes to dead corpses and they live and breathe and walk again. What do we see except the reversal of the curse as death gives way to life? Jesus declares before he raises Lazarus from the dead, John 11, verse 25, I am, interesting choice of words, isn't it? I am 
the resurrection, and the life. You notice something there? Jesus could have said, I I came to give the resurrection. And I came to give life. I have resurrection. I have life. All those are true. But what did Jesus choose to say? I am the resurrection and the life. And the message of the gospel is that when you come to know Jesus, and when you trust in Jesus, you come to know the living God in the person of his son. It's also interesting in the New Testament that salvation is often pictured as this transition from death to life. We call it the new birth. In John chapter 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you can't be, uh, enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. Later in that same chapter, we're told that this is the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish or shall not die, but will have everlasting life. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, if you believe me and if you obey me, what does he say? You have passed from death to life. Ephesians 2 and Colossians chapter 3 verse, uh, they, they, they both pr- portray the gospel like this, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but now we have been made alive together with Christ. So that the New Testament pictures salvation itself after coming into contact with this one who is life and is light and the person of Jesus Christ portrays salvation as passing from death to life, from darkness to light, from blindness to sight. Time and time again, that is the picture of the gospel. Because when you get Jesus, you get the one who speaks from the fire. That was none other than the voice of God through Jesus Christ. When you get Jesus Christ, you get the one who fights for you and defeats all your enemies. When you get Jesus Christ, you get the one who saves forever. When we say amen, that's wonderful. Jesus and salvation and heaven and eternal life. And it can all begin to sound very spiritual, and it is. That is obviously a big component here. It can all begin to sound sort of out there somewhere in the future in the clouds, not really connected to physical life here and now. It's a spiritual, emotional, feely thing. I want to remind you this morning how physical this is. Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Paul makes this promise that the same spirit, the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, will also raise your mortal, physical bodies. Yes, when we die, our spirit and our soul goes to be with Jesus. There's that spiritual existence in heaven right here, right now, when we pass away here. But one day, there is something else coming. And it goes beyond just this spiritual existence with God up in the sky somewhere. There's a very real physical resurrection that happens, a very real physical recreation of earth that happens, and we are there with him reigning and ruling in our physical, raised, glorified, resurrected bodies forever. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. But then he says this, but that is just the first fruits. That was just the first part of the harvest. And the resurrection of Jesus points to the resurrection of your body on the last day. As we finish today, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 51 through 57. That big chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 57. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then it shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. One day, one day the promise of Scripture is that all death and all sin and all the works of the devil, even Satan himself, will be thrown into hell. And this promise comes to us in Revelation 21, verse 4. Death shall be no more. Death shall be no more. Do you realize what that means? The glory of Eden will be restored. That which we were created for will be restored And all the rotten decay and death will be gone. And all that will be left is life and light and vitality and joy. How? Because of the presence of God who is life. My question for you this morning is, do you need life from this life giver? Maybe you're here today and you're an unbeliever. You need life more than you know because the presence of that rot and that decay and that sin and the fall is very much alive within you. And apart from Jesus, what Paul says in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 3 is true. You are dead this morning in your sins and trespasses and you need new life. Find it today in Jesus Christ. Are you aware, believers this morning, of any part of that rot and decay that's still hanging on there. You have life in Christ. You've placed your faith and trust in him. You have eternal life. Your home is heaven. But maybe some of that rot and that decay is still clinging to you, to your mind, to your heart, in your marriage, with your children, in your workplace, with your habits, with your affections, with your desires. Look to this God this morning. The God who is the opposite of rot and decay and death, who is life and light in Jesus Christ, who spoke the universe into existence, who speaks all things into existence, and who can speak into your life today with life. Unbeliever, 
You need more than a touch on your life today. You need life itself. You need to be born again. And the Gospels come to us. John says, John 20, verse 31. This is why I write these things, John says, that you may know that the Christ is Jesus and that by knowing him, you might have life. Turn to him today, unbeliever. Believers, though, I want to talk to you just for a moment. Maybe today, as we come into 2024, and a year is behind us, a new year is ahead of us, you need to be rejuvenated. Maybe your spiritual walk needs to be realigned a little bit. I invite you this morning, as David says in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after you, O God, for the living God. If you're here this morning and you're tired, if you're here this morning and you're thirsty, if you're here this morning and you're hungry, here is life and here is light and here is fullness in God's presence, living and flowing and refreshing and satisfying and healing. And his invitation to you is, the river is here. Jump in. The river of life is here in Jesus Christ. Jump in. Plug in to the church, serve God's people, grow with God's people, learn with God's people. You can turn anywhere and everywhere in this world for meaning and purpose and identity and hope. And trust me, you know this as much as I do, especially our young people, that the world is calling for that. Here is purpose, here is meaning, here is identity, here is what it means to be satisfied and happy and fulfilled. Listen to me, no matter what those voices are, who those voices are, they are all lies. Because true purpose and meaning and identity and life can only be found in this living God revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. And in your heart, you sort of know this, don't you? Who among us would stand up and say today in the middle of all of us, Pastor, you know what? I am life. I am life itself. Would anybody volunteer to say that you are life this morning? Of course not. We're not that stupid. We know it's from somewhere else. The question is, are you serving the one who is life? The invitation is clear. The river is here, unbelievers and believers. Turn off all the noise. Turn off all the other voices, both outside and within. And listen to this voice from the fire. The one true and living God, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. See him. Trust him. Obey him. Worship him. Because he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the living God. It's an interesting thing that um, we come to these big spiritual concepts of, of how to find our life and purpose and meaning and all that stuff in God. And there are lots of spiritual books, and I'm sure there are preachers and teachers and churches who would point you to all sorts of things and uh, a checklist of things to do or maybe a checklist of things not to do to find this hope and this life in the living God. I'm just sort of a s- simple 
person in many ways, and this is one of the, the, those ways in which I'm sinful. When it comes to what God has given us, to know his life and to be connected with him, it's not some weird spiritual mess we have to go through today. God has given us what have been called the ordinary means of grace. And they're actually very ordinary. Word, water, wine, bread. You say, how can I know God? Hear him in his word. Sunday school, morning worship, preaching, devotions, solid teaching. How can I see and experience the gospel? Well, he's given us the signs of baptism to feel and to know and to hear and even smell the promises of God. He's given us the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate today. And if you're at a place today where you say, Pastor, I am tired physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. I'm hurting. I'm lost. How do I connect with this God Number one, hear him in his word. Number two, fellowship with him today at his table. Yes, this is bread and juice, but it's not merely bread and juice. This is a celebration around the throne of God with the very person of his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit. And if you're here today and you say, how can I connect with the living God? I'm a believer. I've been baptized. I profess my faith. How can I connect with the living God? He says, come. Come to the table. Sit and eat with me. If you're an unbeliever today, the same invitation is extended to you. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Profess that faith through believer's baptism. And then you too can be invited to the table to sit and eat with God himself. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604.